Today on The Black Goat, we talk with philosopher of science Anna Alexandrova about replicability and reform in psychology, the science of well-being, and the role that norms and values play in both. Plus, we respond to some listener feedback about the two-body problem on the job market, and a special guest, Samin's dad, drops by. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullet, and we have a special guest uh, right now, Samin's dad, Hamid Vizier. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank <laughs> you for having me here. So, so we were we were talking uh, before we got started about what we should uh, what we should ask you about, and, and we decided the the most important thing we wanted to know is about Samin, um, <laughs> and I think it's it's sort of appropriate because Samin studies self knowledge yeah. and she studies and it by comparing reports. and yeah comparing what people are like to what other people say they like. So uh, has Samin always been like the the sort of serious introverted uh person that she is now is this like you've you've seen her across a much larger period of her life than alexa and i have yeah so i think it is a little bit hard for me to say because i'm i feel a little bit like simin so for me it's very normal compared to him i'm like fun loving and extroverted <laughs> But I think yeah, that how... she knew always what she wanted, so that's uh, that's something that I I remember when even she was a child, she she knew what she wanted and she knew how to get what she wanted. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know stories that's... about like when Samin did stuff that was silly. Like I feel like <laughs> she's you know yeah serious and sort of introverted, and now she's an adult, so she's like even less silly. But I bet that there was like a time when she did something really silly, like, like a Halloween costume or like a birthday party or. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> I need to think about it. Uh, I think that she, maybe she was more extrovert when she was a kid. You know, I remember when we were in France, for example, she was, uh, when we were together with family um, I think she was uh, playing with other kids and so on. Um, I never play with other kids now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she doesn't remember that. So. Yeah. You blocked it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't have any. I mean, I don't have a lot of memories in general from yeah. childhood, so it's hard to save. The reason I can't think of any examples is because I just don't have a lot of. But I remember always she had her own logic that was a little bit different. One was that when she wasn't, for example, happy when uh, myself and my and her mother doing something, she thought that okay, so wait until I become parent and you become a child, so then I can show you. So that the logic was that you know now I am a child, you are a parent, but that's going to change in the future. And, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> Well, half half of that. Or well, I guess she didn't become a parent, but she became a grown up. So that at least halfway came through. Yeah, so she yeah. was uh, part of the way there. And the parents, when they get old, I think that they become a little bit like children. So to some extent, it's, it's true. Probably. <laughs> is yeah, she is she taking coming. good care of you in in Davis? Are you? Uh, 
You're having a good time there? Yeah, we have a very, very good time, actually. I'm happy this year I spent a little bit more time with Simin. In July, we spent a week in France together, and now a few days here. Yeah, my dad lives in Iran, so it's hard. Even just talking on the phone is hard because it's a 12-hour time yeah, difference. Yeah. So it's nice to get to spend time together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have another question. <laughs> yeah. Do you believe that there's a replicability crisis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, everybody has an opinion about everything, no? So, I mean, even if we don't know anything about anything. And that's very interesting, actually. That's what I do... When I'm in Iran, every time I get in a taxi, I ask people questions about what do you think that the problem is the economy, what the problem is, uh, why there's so much traffic in Tehran. And one taxi driver was telling me that the problem is the women who drive SUVs. That's the really <laughs> problem. So everybody has has problem has. Uh, well, this is an area I really don't know anything about it, but. Uh, he doesn't uh, listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, not yet, yeah. 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 We'll send him some materials to read. <laughs> yeah, but it's not always, I mean, even in exact science, we uh, they find out later that the, the theories that they had, they were, not, uh, they were not precise enough, and new theories came. So I think that anything can, can, can be improved. And at some point, when we don't have enough information and enough resources, we go with what we have, and we get some result, and we think that it's true. But when we have tools and the science develops and we have we can do better so we should we should do better i mean this is something very generic (laughs) (laughs) that should be the motto of sips we can do better we can do better better. better. Uh, well that's a good note to end this part on maybe Uh, we'll take a little break and be right back all right thanks so much for joining us thank you for having me here all right, we're back, uh, and well, that was that was fun. It's uh, it's always interesting to get parent report. Uh, <laughs> he sounds a lot like you, Samin. Yeah. That was really cool that he stopped by. Yeah, that's um, cool. So, so we wanted to uh, follow up. We got some responses to our episode. Uh, I guess it will it will be a couple weeks ago now, or no, it'll be it'll have been four weeks ago now on the job market. And during that episode, we talked about, among a lot of other things, the two-body problem. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, Samin, you got uh, you were talking with someone about how like weird they think the two-body problem is. I think it's just it was someone outside of academia who was basically saying like, obviously there are problems and with the way it's implemented that cause inequities and so on, but it's really cool that universities even care and even try to do anything because many companies. Uh, don't right like they would laugh at you if you said hey can you help my partner find a job or I'll come on the condition that you hire my partner or that kind of thing so it, this person wasn't deluded about the fact that like this is a complicated policy that has disparate impact and so on but they were saying like man I wish that private companies cared about this yeah mm-hmm. yeah it is I mean I think sometimes we in academia we lose track of how weird our labor market is like 
you know, just the, I mean, we're, we're sort of confronted with the realities of it at times, but, uh, you know, we also don't necessarily step back and question how weird it is, right? The fact that, like, you're just expected to train for five or six years, and then there won't be as many jobs uh, in, you know, at least if you're talking about sort of research jobs in academia as there are qualified people. So you've, like, spent all that time, and then for whatever job you do get, you'll have to, like, be willing to relocate to almost anywhere, like, that's a really weird thing, right? Like, that's, you know... And I, I was sort of thinking about, like, there are some other kinds of jobs that have some things in common, like that relocation. Like, the Foreign Service is an example. I know some people in the Foreign Service. My understanding is that they, they do, you know, have programs there to, um, to try to find jobs for spouses, although I don't, you know, I don't think it's, like, the easiest thing by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, yeah, like, I don't know. I, like, I know a lot of doctors in town right and there's like you know they don't get jobs for their spouses when they move to town but that's because there's like a million medical practices and and that kind of thing and there's like one research university mm -hmm. in eugene and you have to like drive hours in some random direction to get to another one so has the um like partner hires have they changed over time like is that a more common must, thing now than it used it to be it must be just because women working is more common now than it used to be right like right mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think yeah i think the, the the you know that's another thing that's weird about our job market is that a lot of a lot of stuff seems really well set up for men who are who have partners who either don't work or you know work part time like it's a very sort of you know a lot of the labor market has roots in you know, kind of 1960s, 50s, and earlier, um, and it hasn't totally caught up. Um, and I think there's be some better awareness now. I mean, I was looking uh, a little bit. The Clayman Institute at Stanford, which we can link in the show notes, um, has a lot of good information about sort of research on dual career couples in academia, um, showing, like, discrepancies. You know, women are more likely to have partners uh, who are also academics, and and they're more likely to, to care about also finding something for their partner, which I don't know what that says, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but we also, we got a, a letter uh, um, from a listener that uh, I thought was, was worth reading and responding to. Um, uh, in part, I'll just, you know, broadcast in advance, like I don't agree with this letter, but I, I'm glad to hear from it because we can sort of respond to it. So let me, I'm just going to read parts of the letter. Um, Dear Black Goat, I've chaired six searches in the last three years at a master's granting state university. I want to kindly suggest your advice about hiding a two-body two problem is hot, stinking garbage for institutions like mine. Uh, we've lost at least 10 applicants who we made offers to over not being able to accommodate two bodies. Um, uh, we've got no resources for two bodies. If we've got one search going, we're grateful. Departments fight like feral cats over who should get desperately needed tenure lines. We can't generate a new position on the fly to accommodate you. It's an unrealistic ask. And then kind of a couple other things that aren't exactly about the, this specific two-body problem, but then it comes back. This is an issue of transparency and openness. Just ask during the phone interview if it's a deal breaker. Don't play this dumb game of waiting until you get an offer. I'm sure mentors throughout the world tell their students and postdocs to do exactly this, which is the advice that we gave. Um, your mentors are encouraging you to be an asshole. Um, and uh, um, and the person sort of uh, um, uh, you know goes on and, and then kind of closes with 
um, we have no resources to accommodate you, and then you decide to decline an interview, just be fucking open about the issue. I can't and won't ask you. You've got to bring it up. Um, so that that was and signed perpetual search committee chair. So yeah, <laughs> this kind of came into our our mailbox shortly. Our, our, you just you like know, it because of the swearing. Yeah, I do. I do. You know, well, I you know when I first saw it, I was like, why is this person swearing? I was like, oh, because I swear all the time. Um, they're just responding in kind. Yeah. What did you guys think when you first saw this? Um, I guess. Maybe, like, I have a more naive perspective than both of you. Um, but I can I can imagine feeling frustrated um, being part of a department that is, like, doesn't have the resources to, like, compete with other departments that can sort of, like, be flexible enough to offer um, jobs to people's spouses and stuff like that. Um, I think that different schools have better or worse policies for handling um, partner hires. And I, I can imagine having some sympathy for somebody who, um, is in a department at a university where they don't have a good policy for that. And where as a consequence, they can't hire the people that they want to hire. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of sort of insensitivity to, um, the issues that are faced by people who are on the job market. I'm kind of afraid to say what I think because I'm sure your thoughts will be much more well thought out, Sanjay. So this is like the foil for your better answer. Um, I had a few <laughs> thoughts. One is that like in my experience and the experience of people I know well, you rarely know ahead of time that what's going to be a deal breaker. So deal breaker mm -hmm. is just things aren't that black and white. Like your partner might be applying for jobs at the same time and you don't know where they're going to end up. Or, you know, if they paid you $400,000 a year, you don't need a, a partner or whatever. I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration, but there might be some range where if the benefits and compensation were enough, then that wouldn't be an issue. Or It's just so hard to say that it's absolutely a deal breaker from the beginning. So if, if all he's saying is if you absolutely know for sure, blah, blah, then you should say it. it's like, well, that doesn't apply to 90% of cases, I think. Um, and then the other main reaction I had was that that would be nice in a world where raises weren't linked to outside offers, but we live in a world where raises are linked to outside offers. So if you want to get your department to compensate you appropriately, often one of the main ways to do that is to get an outside offer. And so, I mean, I, I still advise people not to apply if it's 100% a bluff, but I think that being willing to entertain things that you're kind of inclined to think are unlikely to work out is part of the game. Like that's how things work. And if you aren't willing to stretch a little bit, what you think might be realistic, then you're going to be hugely disadvantaged in terms of raises and things like that. So I think, you know, again, things are almost never black and white. It's almost never the case that people apply to a job that they know for sure they would never take unless their partner got a job there or whatever. And then in that gray area, if you if you eliminate that gray area, you're favoring people who are immensely movable, have no attachments, can just pick right. up and go whenever, and, and those are the only people that will get raises. Yeah, so, I mean, the, you know, the reality is that the, the places that are able to accommodate a partner are places, they're usually not going to, they're, they're not going to say up front, this is exactly how much we can do, no more, no less. In fact, one of the things that irritated me about this letter was this person's using a transparency and openness argument when they're not being transparent and open, it, open about their own constraints, right? They're saying, you got to tell us, well, why, do they, why does the job candidate have to tell you? 
if this is your policy is not to accommodate partners, why wouldn't you put that into the ad? Why wouldn't you be the one to say that? And if your answer is because it would look like we're being discriminatory, then maybe you should fucking look in the mirror. Sorry. Um, I'm going to swear back at you. Now we're going to get into a whole swearing thing. I don't have any animus towards whoever wrote this anonymous letter, but, uh, um, you know, like if, if it's your policy not to accommodate partners and you want to defend that and say that publicly, great. If you want to say, well, it's their job to be open with us when we're not being open with them. And, and the reality is that because these things are almost always when they're done, they're a negotiation, that you're asking people to give information that will possibly be used to discriminate against them or possibly be used to give them a worse position in a future negotiation um, when the rational thing for them to do is to ask for this when they have the most leverage. And if you're like, well, we can't engage in that negotiation, then it's then you're different from other institutions. And if this is a problem for you, then you be transparent. Um, and I just, you know, the the thing that I think bugged me about this letter was not so much like I understand the constraints, and we've lost people ourselves over not being able to accommodate dual careers. Um, but when that happens, I look at my institution, and I I feel, you know unhappy with the fact that my institution doesn't do better at accommodating people. I don't blame the candidates. I don't say they're being the asshole for asking for something that's entirely reasonable, that's a normal thing to be asked. And this letter writer's experience shows that it's a normal thing to ask because it keeps happening to them. Um, and, you know, it's like if somebody said, like, stop asking for, you know, more higher salaries than we can afford to pay you, um, I'd be like, offer more money if you want those people <laughs> like so if you're losing people um look at your institution and say we're losing good people yeah. or if, if your institution just can't do it and i understand universities have constraints then you know why are you asking people to put themselves into a vulnerable position when they don't know what's going to happen when a very common thing that could happen if somebody discloses too early is that an institution that maybe could have accommodated them and would have been willing to later on says, no, this is going to be too much of a pain in the ass. We're just not going to interview this person. Yeah. yeah, I think something that comes across, I think, in the letter is this sort of feeling of like discouragement that um, not all schools are able to compete on an equal playing field for like good new faculty, right? And I think that's an understandable thing to feel discouraged about. And maybe you can sort of consider the reasons why those that playing field is unfair and whether that's justified or whatever. But I think putting the burden then on the individual person who is on the job market um, doesn't make sense as a way to resolve that, that yeah. unfairness. And, and I would say maybe the, you know, the reason that they're not advertising it is because it is very likely to have disparate impacts on men and women. And that's, you know, the, the Clayman Institute research, you know, shows us that this is more of a concern for women than for men. And so if this is, whether it's a formal written policy or probably not, but it's just a de facto policy, then you've got a de facto policy with a discriminatory impact. And, you know, maybe, like, you shouldn't be putting that on the people who are trying to navigate that world. You should be putting that on the people that you're acting as an agent of in this transaction, i.e. your institution, and talking to them about trying to change their practice. Cool. Well, uh, so we're actually recording this separately on a different day from our interview with Anna. So um, I think we should probably wrap it up uh, so that we leave time for our conversation with Anna. 
And so uh, up next, if you're listening, um, and two days from now for us, uh, we're going to talk to Anna Alexandrova. So welcome. We're here recording with Anna Alexandrova, and we're very excited to have her join us today. Um, Anna is a senior lecturer in philosophy of science at Cambridge, and she has a book about to come out uh, called A Philosophy for the Science of Well-Being, published by Oxford University Press. She's also published a number of papers on the science of well-being, as well as on models and their role in science. Um, and we're very excited to have her here today. We're hopefully going to talk about well-being and the philosophy of science of well-being a little bit later. And we also want to uh, talk about what psychologists can learn from philosophers and maybe what philosophers can learn from psychologists. Uh, welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining uh, us. Thank you, Sanjay. Great to be here. Yeah, so uh, I guess to, to start it off, um, I, you know, we've been having this discussion for the last, what, six, seven years in psychology about replication, replicability, some people call it the replication crisis. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what that looks like to you uh, as a philosopher who works on issues in social science and psychology and related fields. Like, mm -hmm. how does that look from where, from where you stand? What, are, what sorts of things are you and your research community talking about? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Great question. It looks fantastic is the short answer. <laughs> and uh, uh, because what you are doing is uh, philosophy of science in a very real and practical way. And uh, there's a lot to learn from your activities to uh, standard traditional philosophy of science, which uh, is, as you probably know, is Popper-Kuhn, Lakatosh, and uh, etc. It's a, that's the standard uh, course that we teach. Um, I teach it at Cambridge to natural and social scientists. And the story is, uh, you know, what is the formula for scientific method? Let's try and go through different formula. The inductivist formula, then Popper's falsificationist formula, then Kuhn's formula, and then um, perhaps the compromise that uh, this Hungarian philosopher Imre, Imre Lakatos came up with, which is a little bit of Popper and a little bit of Kuhn, roughly. And uh, um, so students uh, are asked to uh, use these categories to evaluate what they're doing um, in the labs. Um, but um, in reality, it's very, very hard for them to apply these concepts um, to the real problems they're encountering. So in case of the replication uh, crisis and the many attempts and the many interesting initiatives um, your community has put forward to deal with it, um, here is the issue. You are um, not trying to figure out what are the defining characteristics of science that's not uh, the question that I think is most interesting in your efforts. Rather, you're trying to figure out what are the norms by which our community should uh, do what they're doing. And that's a different question because that's a question about, um, you know, not definition of science, not, but rather what sort of uh, norms would most likely lead to better outcomes. And it's very much an empirical question. Right? So, um, for example, when you are trying to figure out whether or not to fix p-value at a certain level, 
um, and whether, or whether to keep it flexible, so to speak. Uh, what you're arguing about is not, you know, uh, at wi which p-value is the defining characteristic of science. No, you're arguing about um, how should we regulate each other uh, uh, and uh, under what conditions should we extend trust and credibility to each other. And you are doing really um, fascinating stuff in a realm of what might be called social epistemology rather than sort of the standard classical uh, popper coon exercise where you are uh, sort of arguing about um, the defining characteristics of science. Does that sound right? That's, I mean, that's super interesting to me because I can, so I can, I can look at the conversation that's going on. I can recognize what you're describing happening a lot, that, that there's conversations about norms, there's conversations about uh, sort of um, incentive structures. There's conversations about this being an empirical issue that we, you know, need to do meta science. What's interesting to me is when we talk about philosophy of science, that's. I don't think psychologists, many of us, are connecting that. So when we talk about, and I think it's because m what most of us n know or think we know about philosophy of science is Popper and Kuhn and maybe Lakatos, and uh, um, like, yeah, for me. I, you know, I've sort of recognized that, like, okay, these are, like, dead white men from the last century, and I assume philosophy of science is still happening, and I'm probably missing out on a whole bunch of stuff, but I, I, it's like, those are separate conversations, so I feel like when psychologists turn to the philosophy, it is for that kind of, like, we want, we're looking to philosophy for the right answer, or to tell us the kind of, like, what science is, the, the sort of normative answer, what science is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what you're saying is that <laughs> this whole other conversation that we're having is, is sort of has maybe more of a contemporary connection to philosophy of science? Um, right. Well, I'm, of course, as a philosopher of science, I'm never going to say that philosophy of science is useless to the current conversation you're having. I think it's uh, extremely valuable to try and define what counts as a replication, which is what you're doing. It's a philosophical question. And so you are, you are doing what you're doing qua philosophers, right? Uh, not uh, qua psychologists. You're putting on a new hat when you're having these conversations, which is great. Um, uh, but nevertheless, um, yes, Anjay, I'm kind of tempted to say that um, it's very hard to infer any kind of criterion for uh, the correct uh, incentive structure or, or replicability or p-value from those classical conversations. Anna, you mentioned that um, you think that it's difficult for people to sort of apply these philosophical um, like the philosophy of science and these philosophical principles to actually conducting their, like, our own research. Um, and I'm wondering, when you say that you think that that's challenging for people, do you, I could imagine that you mean it's intellectually challenging, like it's just like a, an intellectually challenging task to figure out how to actually do that, or whether you mean something more like there are like institutional barriers to people doing that. So, so theoretically, like, we sort of know how to do that um, but we don't do it because it's challenging because there are like competing motivations. Mm, um, gosh, both probably, right? Um, uh, scientists love Popper from the very beginning. They have, you know, there are all sorts of wonderful quotations about how, you know, there is no more to science than scientific method, and there is no more to scientific method than what Popper said. 
Sir Herman Bondi, right? um, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And he, so in some way, there are no um, intellectual barriers because it's clear how many times uh, scientists have crossed that barrier to endorse a given philosophical view. Um, so, but, but sometimes it's done for you know, bad reasons. So I think in case of Popper, he basically, his view was stroking scientists' collective ego, <laughs> and that's why there is uh, so much um, adoration of him. Um, whereas, uh, um, whereas for what you're doing now, it strikes me, is, uh, you know, very sort of far more... Um, complex, far more intricate and far more difficult than trying to find that you know, a criterion of science that's, that strokes your ego. Is it though? Because so, one oh. thing, I mean, one thing yeah. I think is really interesting is that as I've been thinking a lot about replicability and giving talks and stuff, I'm trying to boil down, you know, and actually later today I'm giving my very first lecture to 400 undergrads on research methods. And so the first lecture is what is science and what makes science different from pseudoscience and, you know, what are, what are yeah. And I've tried to boil down, like, on a practical level, not a philosophical level, like, what are a couple of necessary conditions that if you want to call yourself a scientist, you have to agree to? And the two that I keep coming back to that are not the most important necessarily, but the ones that we don't follow, we've, like, strayed so far from, are uh, show your work, which we teach in, like, third grade, right? Mm -hmm. And make predictions and then test them. And those are two mm -hmm. separate steps. You can't use the same data set to generate a hypothesis and then test it. And mm -hmm. the second one, I know there's a philosopher of science, De Root, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, who has talked about the importance of that. Um, but the first one, especially, like, transparency, showing your work, that's something I know, like, sociologists of science, like Merton, have talked about it. But one kind of argument that people use against increasing transparency is Popper never said anything about it. Uh -huh. And I'm not, it's probably not even true, but I think it, I wonder sometimes if these really, really basic things, it's not enough to define science. It doesn't solve the demarcation problem, but still like there are things that I consider necessary. If you want to call yourself a scientist that you endorse these norms or values. Um, but are they reflected in Popper, Kuhn, Makatosh, or other like philosophies of science, or are they taken for granted? Is it like, well, obviously, if you're a scientist, you're already doing those things, so that's not what we're going to be talking about. How fascinating! Uh, thank you, Simin. Um, no, I think you are absolutely right that um, um, Popper and his um, crew. Um, thought that it's possible to speak about science on a purely logical level. And they, this is why they, in some ways, uh, discounted contributions of Merton and uh, sociologists of science. They thought that those are just what they called external history of science, history of institutions. No, 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 we are interested in the logic. But what we figured out uh, later, you know, trying to make good on the promise of logic of science is that it's really impossible. It's really hard to, well, uh, not just hard. I would go out on a limb and say there is no uh, single non-trivial, um, well-articulated logic of science. Rather, what you need to do is talk about um, what the nature of the scientific community. So what you're teaching to your students is precisely 
um, um, well, it sounds like it's logic plus na nature of community. So you've made already the shift onto uh, social epistemology. And I think in philosophy, that shift was made by, well, not just uh, Kuhn, but also by feminist uh, epistemologists who were interested in uh, sort of shifting the conversation. In particular, Helen Longino, a great philosopher in Stanford, talked about uh, uh, defi defining science not by the logic, but by the norms. So she picked up um, Merton's banner, and I think it's the best banner to carry now. So I think what you're doing is uh, trying to figure out what collective norms and the discipline of uh, social psychology and more broadly psychological sciences will adopt. And uh, that's not a question that uh, Popper will help you with. So I, I want to go back to s connect something you said earlier to this. And I'm glad you, you raised it when you, you, you talked about why Popper is appealing to scientists. And I, I, I um, uh, a while back read Peter Godfrey Smith's uh, textbook, and he said something very similar. And I, I'd actually been wanting to ask you if this is sort of received wisdom, and I'm now I'm getting the sense that it is, that like scientists like Popper because he strokes their ego. Godfrey Smith said something very similar. Um, or, you know, he said that, you know, he, Popper presents a sort of heroic vision of the scientist that appeals to people. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> but, you know, I think what one of the things that when I read that in uh, uh, when I first encountered that that sort of argument, you know, it didn't it didn't feel to me like it fully encapsulated why psychologists or why scientists like Popper. And I, I think one of the one of the other reasons that I, I suspect I, I, some of this is introspection, some of this is just from observing, is that Popper feel you know this idea of like providing a logic. Scientists like logic and evidence and. We want to feel like what we're doing is supported by logic. And there are some, you know, very, they might be very sort of superficial and cartoon, but the, some lessons people take from Popper, like you can't prove something right, but you can prove something wrong. It, it sort of, you know, falsificationism kind of, you know, it's got modus tollens in the middle that feels pretty solid, you know, all these other things. Um, the idea that there's sort of like something at the core of science, there's something defensible in sort of some kind of unassailable way, I think, appeals to scientists. And I think one of the things that when you start moving into uh, talking about norms, I suspect one of the things that makes scientists uncomfortable is that norms, and, you know, especially you say feminist epistemology or you say postmodernism to people and, you know, or whatever, and, and they'll start, like, scientists start getting this, like, caricatured view of, of those areas and they start thinking, you know, then it starts to just feel purely arbitrary. Like if you say it's norms, we could have any, you know, I think this is where people's minds probably go. We could have any set of norms whatsoever. It's almost like, you know, the anything goes idea from Fire Robin that like, well, if that's the case and there's nothing special about science, there's nothing, you know, and we could, you know, we could just come up with whatever norms we want. We could say that replicability doesn't matter. We could say that, uh, um, you know, might makes right. We could say, you know, whatever we wanted to do. Um, so how do you, like, how would you respond to maybe reassure or maybe not if you don't have reassurance, but like, how, how would you, to, if, when you, when you talk to scientists and say like, this is about norms and it's about a community, it's not about, there's some fundamental core logic. 
how do you reassure them that that's not just completely unanchored and adrift and could go anywhere? Beautiful, thank you. Um, you are completely right that the, the norms cannot be just anything a community accepts. Um, and Popper would probably say that, you know, even if you don't like my um, fundamental logic of uh, falsificationism, even you don't, if you don't believe falsifications are possible, even if uh, you are tempted by um, objections that people have made to me, you still must accept that I got something right and that thing that I got right was a fundamentally critical spirit of science. Uh, that nothing is sacred, that everything is up for grabs, and that um, you have to be willing to give up uh, what you believe, and uh, you have to be willing to give evidence. Fine, so that, that's, that's the, within that logic, lots of norms can realize it. And it's important to um, note just how incredibly flexible this logic is and how many different community arrangements it can allow. Just look at the diversity of the sort of norms that scientific communities uh, accept, depending on their discipline. Uh, just look at how different um, psychological sciences are from economics or from uh, uh, biological sciences, etc. So I think... Uh, it's important to, um, the fundamental question that uh, I'm struggling with is how much diversity is permissible within scientific norms and how much diversity is possible while we that, such that we can still have a single conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I, I read your, when, when I read your blurb, Anna, I was, um, it really had an impact on me because I think that, um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but one of my, like my interpretation of at least part of what you're saying is that in a big way, the replicability sort of like, um, I guess community or like movement or whatever you want to call it is advancing through norms rather than directly through logic. Right. So even though like none of us would say that we don't think that there's like a logic behind the like norms that we're trying to institute, I think in a lot of ways, then the changing norms are what push things forward. Um, and I think, you, Sanjay, what you were saying um, is interesting too, because I don't think that, like, I think that's like an unpleasant thing to sort of acknowledge that norms can be such like a powerful influence when we, like as scientists, want everything to be sort of driven solely by um, the logic. And I was, it made me wonder too, like whether whether it's even sort of like acceptable to consciously rely on norms or whether, you know, you have to sort of at least tell yourself that it's like purely based on logic and you're, you're like really depending more on just like convincing people of the right thing rather than like relying on social influence. Sanji, you going to take that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, sorry, go for it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, it, it feels to me like we're comfortable talking about norms as a sort of implementation, right? Like we're comfortable saying we're going to set norms to accomplish something as a means, um, but that the, you know, there's a sort of like kind of meta norm that the, the argument about norms has to be grounded in logic. Um, and it has to be, you know, uh, um, so we can, it's fine to say like we're going to change incentive structures, but what are you changing the, if you're going to justify that, you have to justify it as like this will be good for science and, and you can't, 
explicitly appeal to something arbitrary or something that's considered non-scientific. Like you can't say we're going to change these incentive structures to benefit the most powerful people with the biggest labs or whatever. Even and and people will I think, you know, debate whether some people are kind of using pseudological arguments as a vehicle to really do that or to do the opposite of that or whatever. Um, but there there's this kind of like meta norm or the sense of decorum that you're supposed to be uh, saying you're doing it for logical reasons, um, and and it's kind of, so it's sort of interesting to watch. Yeah. So so again, the the norms we sort of I think that's part of the separation between norms and philosophy in our discourse is that we're we're totally fine talking about norms, but when we talk about philosophy, the philosophy has to prove that we're right. Um, it's you know, and so a philosophy around norms is like. I think kind of wigs people out a little bit. I think how we got into this mess is separating the philosophy from the norms. And so like, I think the idea that it's enough to have a logic, let's say Popper's completely right. The idea that's enough that, you know, therefore scientists will follow that logic and be completely objective and rational and so on. That's how we got ourselves into this mess. And I think one really interesting issue that maybe makes all of this very recursive, I don't know if that's the right word, but like, a never-ending loop is that what norms help to achieve Popper's goals if we endorse those or whatever philosophy of science we adopt, then which norms help achieve that, how much diversity is permissible, et cetera, is a behavioral science question, right? That's, that's an empirical question that behavioral scientists are in the best position to study and understand. But before we can study scientifically, we need to know what, what science means, what does it mean to do science, et cetera. So it's kind of an impossible situation. But ignoring the fact that that scientists aren't magically going to do what's best for the scientific goals and values and logic that we adopt is Mm -hmm. if we ignore that, then that's how we got into this. It's just so naive. And actually I think the, the lowering the alpha debate versus like justify your alpha versus don't even do hypothesis testing. I think I covered the three main positions I know of. Um, well, versus keep it at 0.05, I guess that's a fourth main, probably the biggest <laughs> position that we don't really talk about. But um, I think so much of that debate, at least among my the people I, I engage with on Twitter and so on, is not about philosophy of science. It's not about logic. It's about human behavior and beha- like behavioral science. Like, what will get people to change their behavior? Is it realistic to expect a big change? Is you know, carrots and sticks and all these things? And these are behavioral science questions indeed behavioral science but uh, what kind of behavioral science questions are they i'm um, you know i'm often tempted uh, by uh, well this idea let's see let let, let me know what you think of it that um, what we consider as evidence in, in science is greatly informed by the communities we come from and uh, one source of evidence that I see very much uh, discounted is um, a case study. So I have this uh, colleague, an economist uh, that I love, who says to his students, why would you do a case study? It just gives you one data point. And when I think about what's wrong with that, I think, well, gosh, no, it doesn't. It gives you... Um, a model to work with, a case study. It gives you a great deal of evidence about uh, how things have worked out in some case that may or may not share features with others. And it seems to me that um, um, it will take a lot of case studies to solve the empirical question that Simin, you're raising, uh, rather than... (laughs) 
rather than a lot of case studies of what? Well, I think of scientific communities, right? So like psychology would be a case study? Maybe this is a narrower version of that, but when when you're saying that, Anna, I'm thinking about, you know, a lot of the conversations that happen around sort of like what should be our either norms or explicit rules around what we publish and how. So what goes in a journal article? Um, Do they need to be pre-registered? What alpha should they have? Um, what, what needs to be disclosed, what, you know, what, what should be required to be disclosed and not the data, the certain procedures, whatever. So a lot of the conversation around this is, you know, people wanted, some people want to do the, make some change and some other people say, well, we don't know if it'll work or if it'll have unintended bad consequences. And, and it's like that, that often, whether by intent or not, ends up being sort of a drag on implementing the changes at all. And one of the things that seems to be happening in the field is kind of a case study thing where we're not doing like controlled randomized experiments because, you know, we just, we can't do those kind of policy experiments with our own science, but we have case studies where a journal will adopt some new policy and we'll, we'll see. And it's not a controlled experiment. It's a pre-post design. And, and, you know, like the, there's a discussion recently about badges and the effects that badges have had on practices at the journal Psychological Science when people get a badge to signal that they have open data or open materials or pre-registration. And it was a pre-post design. And, and there were, you know, there was a big discussion about, like, all these other changes that were happening. And so it's not a controlled experiment, but that's kind of the the best, I guess, we can do. And it's, it's instructive that at least, like, we can say, well, the journal didn't collapse. <laughs> you know, the, the, and so if there are other journals that work kind of similar to that, um, maybe they won't collapse either. And we can sort of debate, like, is it reasonable to think that these changes were attributable to the badges versus not? Um, so I don't know if that's sort of what you mean by, by kind of case studies. But that's, that's like a kind of a, it's a, it's a sub-community of psychologists because there's a set of people involved in sort of those changes and implementing them. But it's also, yeah, it's a little bit more institutional than committee or community. Oh, fascinating. Thank you for explaining this to me. Yeah, it seems you guys have to uh, decide uh, what's going to be sufficient evidence. And often that decision will not be the decision that you would make in other cases, right? What's the sufficient evidence that a norm works? Is that a decision that you could make on the same grounds as the decision? What's sufficient evidence for proving right. a, a sort of your <laughs> hypothesis? Uh, and if, P has to be less than 0.05 yeah, yeah, yeah. to, yeah, to right. make the change. So here's, the, here's an amazing, uh, I think a very important fact, and that is that uh, doubt can be um, abused. Um, and we see that, of course, in, in chain, climate change denialism. We see that there's a very, very important book uh, in, uh, you know, probably most important book in philosophy of science uh, um, that to come out recently is by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway called Merchants of Doubt, which is uh, about all the strategies that uh, the industry has um, uh, adopted to uh, use scientific method and Popperian criteria of and other such things such as critical spirit and doubt. How could you be against that? In order, of, of course, to slow down adoption of various consumer protections, and they're very they're being very same strategies are being used by uh, climate change denialists now. 
So uh, this is the dark side, right, of the critical spirit. And you can have to make these decisions um, as you go along when doubt starts being profitable to people for the wrong reasons. So again, uh, I think it just raises the question of how yeah. there are no simple solutions. That's really interesting. I think that's especially... That, oh, it reminds me ahead. of the reactions to large-scale pre-registered replication attempts that then all mm-hmm. of a sudden you see people really sharpening their critical skills. Yeah, that I, I love it. I think it's great. I want them to apply that to all research, not just replication. Say, okay, <laughs> if a like, 15-lab pre-registered transparently reported replication is not good enough for you, I respect that. Then why is an original study with a fraction of the sample size not transparently reported and weaker evidence? Why is that enough? So, yeah, I think there's a way to turn that kind of strategic doubt to our benefit to say, great, okay, that's exactly the right attitude to have. Now let's not apply it selectively. Let's apply it more consistently. Beautiful. Yeah, I I think that 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 conversation is really difficult to have because of some of the the norms in our community where like I think it's one thing to say climate change deniers are selectively using this when it's they're they're not science you know a lot of the people that are doing it they're not scientists they're sort of not part of that community and I, I do think a lot of doubt is expressed in good faith by people who are just looking at what's going you know it's part of the normal conversation we need to have within our community and so when you start to, you know, accuse a fellow scientist of using a, a logical-seeming argument to sort of, for, for other reasons other than, like, the pure noble pursuit of science, like, you know, you're just protecting the status quo, or, or, and, and the arguments go in the other way. Where I've had people tell me um, the reason all, there are all these personality psychologists who are pro-replicability is because they're getting their revenge on the social psych- psychologists ah, who wow. there's this long history from decades ago. Uh, um, Anna knows uh, about and that. So, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so I think that, that, that like those kinds of bad faith accusations um, can be really toxic because yeah. it says you're not being a scientist, which is what you're supposed to be. So it says you're not being a good member of this community. It's not like you're from this outside community that's like borrowing our ideas mm-hmm. to try to use against us. It's like you're one of us, but you're betraying our our norms of like you know sincere sort of logical based doubt. But really, often what all those accusations come down to, which is exactly how you could describe an accusation of p-hacking, right? When someone says, no, I think that this researcher inadvertently cherry-picked and, you know, picked the analysis and that, that supported their, their prediction. Um, really, all we're saying is that scientists are human. If we're saying you, you're selectively <laughs> applying logic to, de- to support your predetermined position that's that's not an extreme claim that's just saying that you're susceptible to human biases and motivated cognition that shouldn't be that insulting right Anna, are there examples of other uh like either historically or you know currently like other like interesting comparisons of scientific communities that have had conversations around norms like this. I'm just curious, like, are there things we could be learning about how those have been carried out at other times? I don't know if you know the answer to that. That's kind of a, maybe that's too vague of a question. But all the time is the answer. All the time. (laughs) You know, Descartes versus Newtonians. uh, Is it, 
is it a marker, a marker of science uh, to be able to specify the mechanism rather than merely an equation? Um, a big argument ensued. Uh, uh, later on, is it uh, acceptable to science uh, to make your conclusions on the basis of animal research conclusions about human beings? Is it acceptable to science to rely on uh, idealized models, uh, you know, pretty much history of economic thought uh, for the last mm -hmm. hundred years? It is uh, mm -hmm. happening all the time, and uh, I suppose you're the good question is whether there are examples of successful resolutions of this. So I have, you know, I'm in a department with um, a great colleague, uh, Simon Schaffer, uh, founder of, uh, in many ways, of sociology of scientific knowledge. And in his views, the resolutions to these debates are always ultimately political. Who is a gentleman that is acceptable enough to listen to in the Royal Society. Uh, and that's, that, that's the story of his book, Leviathan and the Air Pump. Uh, it has to be... Um, it can't be Hobbes, because Hobbes is a royalist. Uh, it has to be Boyle, because Boyle is accepting uh, the new regime. So uh, that's the haunting question uh, in, mm -hmm. in all of this, whether uh, these resolutions uh, are ultimately anything but in the end, sort of a new regime coming uh, to power. Um, I'm probably more optimistic than that. It sounds like uh, what you are doing <laughs> now is incredibly thoughtful and in good faith, as you were saying, and uh, you know, giving all of your colleagues uh, you know, maximum benefit of doubt and uh, um, resolving um, your uh, conflicts in a healthy and genuine way. Uh, I don't know any other, anything else you could do. That's what it looks like from the outside? <laughs> <laughs> not always, not always. <laughs> I, I won't mention examples. <laughs> but I thought the latest debate about, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, p-value, just watching it from the... Um, from from uh, my perspective, you are. There is a genuine question of whether uh, uh, there should be a single value or should not be a single value, and uh, there are arguments on both sides. And there are some people who worry that their way of producing knowledge uh, will die if you adopt this new norm. And there are people who say, well, too bad. Um, I think it's a genuine conflict that uh, you need to resolve uh, uh, in a way that's yeah. maximally inclusive. Um, uh, I, th I think one thing I really like recently, and I think this is a recent trend, is that the replicability movement or whatever you want to call it is getting big enough and broad enough that there's now a lot of internal disagreements, which I think before it seemed yeah. at least to the outside, I think as a united front that was like super incapable of self-criticism and self-reflection. And now I think we're showing like, no, we can disagree with each other. Um, <laughs> and I think, so, so I think the alpha debate is one of those. And I think there's another one coming. Um, wow. And I think it's the question about internal meta-analysis. So if I do three studies and I meta-analyze them, is that better? You know, and that evidence is like really, really strong below right. 0.005. Is that better? And I think a lot of people 
who are in the replicability movement think that's a great development. I and some others think it's a terrible development and we uh -huh. should not do that. <laughs> and I think that's going to mm -hmm. be a fight we're going to have down the pipeline. And it's going to be great because I think it's good to show the world that we can argue with our friends and like really disagree yeah. because we've been telling the outside, the other people who don't agree with us that, hey, we should be able to debate and disagree and it's not uncivil and it's not a tone problem and so on. But that's just talk until you do that to each other and show that you can mm -hmm. do that without it being, yeah. Well, it strikes mm -hmm. me that um, um, you, again, not to um, not to brown nose you, but it, it strikes me that there is no other way to solve these problems than what you're doing, because there is, uh, um, well, what else could it be? So it could be that uh, the American Psychological Association will uh, uh, convene a committee and uh, lay out, uh, yeah, or <laughs> what, or, or, or how about you hire a philosopher king who, who figures it out for you, you know, resurrect uh, Sir Karl Popper. Uh, none of this is forthcoming, so there is no choice other than to um, have these debates and to see them play out and to see where the chips fall in the end. And uh, there isn't going to be um, a solution that will be purely logical. So from your perspective, where the chips fall in the end, so a cynical perspective that you kind of expressed, I don't know if you endorse, is that it's all political and that, you know, where the chips fall in the end is not necessarily that the best argument is going to win. It's that whoever has the most power, or the mm -hmm. most charisma or the most whatever. Are you, how worried are you about that in this case? Or like, what could we do? Do you have any ideas to like, make sure that where the chips fall is determined more by the quality of the evidence and arguments than by who's loudest or who's most powerful or yeah. who's just gets tired less quickly? Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, uh, I don't think philosophy of science uh, has anything to teach you in this regard, but the latest development in political theory about uh, implementations of deliberate de public deliberations, that's where, that's the relevant material, right? So um, there's a lot of interesting work in political science about uh, people's ability to uh, change their mind following public deliberations. Deliberations that are uh, sufficiently um, informed, that are uh, well uh, managed and well curated, where power is under control, um, etc. Et right. So this is this so is Twitter a, basically is what you're saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, uh, that's the premise of um, this movement called deliberative polling uh, coming out of Stanford Center for Deliberative Democracy. I take it. Um, uh, it. It strikes me that that's a better resource for you than uh, uh, logic cool. of science. I really thought that you um, you were going to tell us that we were ignoring philosophy too much and you were going to tell us how paying more attention to philosophy and being more conscious of like what it means to create a falsifiable hypothesis and like stuff would make us better scientists. And I was, like, I was kind of ready for that. I was like about to take notes. Like, this is what I need to pass on to my graduate students. I can do that too. But uh, I, I, do, I would really like to know, I think, Maybe if you think there are sort of like big things that philosophy, science can offer to psychologists or replicability in particular. Um, 
I'm not sure it's possible to draw this line. I mean, I think you are philosophers of science in what you're doing. I mean, you have put this hat on and there is no going back. So in terms of institutionally, yeah, there are philosophers of science who could probably tell you stuff that you haven't read and, or whatever. But uh, it seems that they are participating. You know, Eduard Machery was one of the uh, signatories of that letter and uh, um, so were lots of others. Um, and well, in my own work, I think um, I think I have I am trying to improve uh, measurement of well-being by trying mm -hmm. to make scientists a little bit less afraid of making and justifying normative judgments. So, if I if I'm going to criticize um, the uh, current uh, psychological. Um, status quo is that uh, psychology is thought to be a value-free science and uh, when you measure phenomena even when they are phenomena that are clearly normatively latent such as uh, quality of life well-being frailty health uh, psychological health mental health whatever it is i think there is too much fear uh, to own up to the fact that this is an explicitly political process. But a political process can be done well, right? If, uh, well, if you're an optimist. So it has to be done well. <laughs> um, uh, so I, you know, yeah. I, I worry that, yeah. um, for example, commitment to uh, certain forms of psychometric validation turns mm -hmm. uh, a question that is ultimately political, what is a good measure of well-being, into a question that's technical. Mm -hmm. Now, that's right. wrong, yeah. right? I've, it has to remain a political question. Sorry. Right. I, yeah. I think that's a really... That's a really interesting parallel between what we've just been talking about and, and your work on well-being, because in both cases, yeah, there are these normative and value questions underlying it that we're sort of pretending we don't talk about. And, and actually, oftentimes, when we do talk about them, they go well, right? So the p-value thing, like Samin, it's posted this picture on Twitter, like she was sharing a train ride with Daniel Lockins, and the two of them are on opposite sides of this debate, but they posted this picture of the two of them smiling together. And, and it's like those things don't get ugly because there's a sense that like we have shared values where we're trying to get to the same place and we're just disagreeing about how to get there. And even in the larger conversation, like when Brian Nosick gave a colloquium in my department, he started with like, what are our shared values as scientists? And he talked about the Mertonian norms and then he framed a lot of what he was doing and it went over really well in my department. And I think one of the things, uh, this is my, now my attempt to segue, but I think one of the, the parallels I, I see in your work on well-being is you're kind of, you're saying something very similar, or it sounds like you're saying something very similar, which is like there are norms in there, there are values in there that are not just technical or logical or evidentiary questions, and that we would be better off being explicit about the mm -hmm. fact that they're in there and talking about them rather than just pretending we're just engaged in a sort of, you know, uh, um, knob-twisting, button-pressing exercise of, of logic and mechanics. Can I draw another parallel? So mm -hmm. I just read <laughs> this morning um, your paper on, on uh, Is Construct Validation Valid, which is a great paper and short Thank and easy you. to read. Um, and I think cool. another parallel, which maybe this... Yes, with Dan mm -hmm. Habern. Um, um, and I think it's also related to what your book is about. Um, and 
one of the parallels I see with replicability is that you're saying with construct validation or with just defining what construct, how you're going to operationalize your construct and how you're going to define your construct, there's flexibility and we can't get rid of that flexibility. There's no way to constrain it so that it's a mathematical thing. And that's true with other aspects of research too. And I think it's really important at the operationalization stage. Um, but, and I think, you know, it's same with alpha, right? There's some flexibility. There's going to be cases where it's reasonable to say I used a different alpha. And what Daniel Lawkins and others are saying is just justify that decision. And what you're saying about operationalization is justify your operationalization, your measurement of that construct. And, and it's, it's not going to be an airtight, like there's only one way to do it. So it's good. there's going to be some subjectivity, some kind of debate about it. But let's engage in that debate. Um, thank you. That's very helpful. Well, so here's the darker side. Thank you for for, for saying all these wonderful things. Um, uh, of course, that's exactly what I believe, that uh, value judgments need to be justified. You know, um, it is very easy for scientists or for, for philosophers to say that, well, you know, philosophy is always relevant to science. Philosophy is completely unavoidable to science. And, uh, you know, whenever whenever Stephen Hawking or, or who, who is it, uh, who else has recently been poo-pooing philosophy, I can't remember, one of the big public uh, physicists, um, so philosophy hasn't discovered anything. And then philosophers get all up in arms. Oh, my God, how terrible, what a terrible thing to say. That's so not true. And yet... Um, there is a sense in which it is wrong for scientists to constantly philosophize and to constantly raise these deep, um, big philosophical issues because that's the point of Kuhnian uh, ideas that uh, at some point philosophy has to stop and normal science has to start, right? And normal science is a science that puts aside certain deep philosophical questions about, you know, how should we operationalize well-being or what, how, what should we do about our testing. And this um, normal science is completely essential to science, you know, despite what Popper said, that it's, that it's bad science, right? Uh, no, it's not. Normal science, if there was no normal science, there wouldn't be this enormous progress. You know, later on, we have to reopen a whole bunch of philosophical boxes, but they don't always have to be open. Otherwise, you guys won't get any work done. Yeah. In fact, that's one mm -hmm. version of the asshole reviewer, too, is the reviewer who's like, well, what is well-being anyway? I mean, does anybody really know? <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you're just like, shut up. That's not the point of this paper. <laughs> good, 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 good. Yeah. Wow, this is so, so much you... fun. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you a little bit more about that paper? Um, uh, I was, can you say a little bit more about the idea of normative validity? Cause I, 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 you kind of, you guys kind of ended with this idea that, um, a sort of part of the construct validation process should be this normative validation. I'm curious, like, can you we should, say a little bit more about what that is? We should clarify that normative means something different in philosophy than it does in psychology. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, thank you. Very tough question. So uh, an incredibly underdeveloped idea in this paper, as you correctly note. Normative validation, normative validity, by that we mean... Um, whether uh, the measure, the questionnaire that you have picked is not only reliable and uh, is, uh, has passed normal construct validation procedures, but whether, and not just content validity, um, but uh, if you want, I can describe that uh, another time, the difference. But normative validation is whether it measures well-being 
say, um, in accordance with what uh, we want well-being to be in a given community, in accordance with the value that is attached to this concept. Oh, very, very hard to say exactly how normative validation should proceed, but what Dan and I were trying to say in that paper is that, my God, there is so much good conceptual work going on in uh, philosophy, anthropology, other disciplines about um, what sort of values people attach to happiness. So what, um, uh, what is so good about well-being and what's not so good about well-being. And these are questions that it is... Um, easy for scientists to ignore because they're busy with other things but um, if we if they're never opened then we end up using um, well there are some exam exemplars of uh, validated measures that were terrible for for affective states um, you know that we are uh, we use uh, I think the example uh, Gosh, I forget the example. We we've got the uh, Panas scale, right? I mean, if you know anything about um, nature of happiness, even as a human being, looking at that scale, you realize, oh my God, that's nothing to do with happiness as you value happiness. So, some kind of minimal consideration of uh, the fact that it takes a certain humanistic knowledge to know what certain valuable states are. Um, uh, such as happiness, but probably uh, there are others. Uh, I'd be interested to know which are the value-laden concepts in social psychology um, apart from uh, those, um, and uh, talking about them. So perhaps just acknowledging the issue is uh, the minimum that we're asking for. I love one line in your paper where you write, we are under no illusions that this is a lot to ask of scientists whose identity often enough consists in not being philosophers. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, uh, I have, um, as, as Simin, you and I know, Dan Habron's ideas about happiness, um, well, in my view, some of the most interesting ones there are in current philosophers. And I, I think his emotional state theory of happiness is truly the very best uh, view about nature of happiness there is. And uh, yet it's precisely the view that is not at all reflected in uh, uh, most of the existing measures of affective states. But uh, he is uh, making uh, a scale now, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, so perhaps we should ask Dan to show us how normative validation works on uh, the basis of his mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you so, uh, oh. talked about in your paper is this idea of theory avoidance. And I wonder if that's like an extreme version of this, like not wanting to be um, philosophers. So yeah. um, a friend, Will Cunningham, wrote a paper about uh, uh, defending brain mapping. Um, so mm -hmm. his like, idea was that um, social neuroscience has gotten like too big for its britches and um, people are trying to... Uh, test theories with fMRI data when really we should um, acknowledge our limitations and start with the brain mapping stage where we're just doing this like agnostic descriptive work first. Um, and yeah, I was sort of wondering like, is that sort of what you think the kind of thing that uh, like social psychologists seem to be sort of 
hiding behind when they do this theory avoidance that they're just like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to stay away from theory entirely. And I'm just going to like sit here and be like a scientist who documents people's knob turning and stuff like that. And then sort of hide from the, the like weeds of the theoretical issues. Uh, wonderful example. I wish I knew more about it to say, uh, yes. Um, but again, I shouldn't, we shouldn't overstate the point, right? Because, uh, theory avoidance is, uh, the reason why uh, um, physics has progressed beyond, beyond uh, um, you know, Cartesian uh, speculations about mechanisms. Uh, so sometimes you just have to mm -hmm. uh, bury certain philosophical questions and move on. I also think what, what Anna, you mean by theory might be pretty different than the kinds of theory that Will might be responding to, and I haven't read Will's paper either, but like my own feeling about a lot of psychological theory is that it jumps 10 steps ahead of where it should be. So like I think, mm. Anna, at least in your paper, you're talking about what is your theory of one of your variables? Like what mm -hmm. do you mean by well-being? Yeah. Yeah. Not like what is your theory of how 18 variables are causally related to each other and then moderated and mediated and whatever. Like let's yeah. actually just start with what theory are you assuming when you're operationalizing your, your X variable this way? Like that's, that's a amount of theory I think we can engage in and it's responsible <laughs> yeah. and yet we often skip over. That's right. That sounds right. You guys, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to take my children <laughs> swimming. <laughs> this is so much fun. Thank you this so much for incredible. talking to yeah, fun. Really Thank fun. you so much, Anna. We this could go really on for, for a long, yeah. long time. Yes. Yeah. And again, to reiterate, um, I think what you're doing is really, really amazing and valuable. And thank you for doing it. Well, thank you for doing what you do. It's really awesome to have philosophers helping us figure out how to study the things we're trying to study. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much again to Anna Alexandrova for joining us. And you've been listening to the Black Coat Podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you rate us, that helps other people find out about us. We're on the web at www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at Black Goat Pod. We're on Facebook too. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>